Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm Jared Brummett, audio engineer and editor, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. In this episode, we're diving into the next installment of our study in Philippians. Rob delivered this message at World Outreach Church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. As always, we'd like to invite you to visit robertjmorgan.com, where you'll find Rob's blog post, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Now, here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Thank you, Caleb, and all of you. Now you can be seated. And it's a joy to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Last weekend, I was at the Billy Graham Training Center at the Cove in Asheville, North Carolina. Some of you have been there. And you know that it's sort of out in the cove or the hollow of the woods, and it's dark there. And as I went from one building to the other, I looked up and saw so many stars in the sky. When you live in an urban area, or you live where there's a lot of light, you forget how many stars there are because you can't see them so very well. But I just thought how beautiful this sky is. And it brings up a very interesting question. Why is the nighttime sky so black? Because there are a lot of stars. Why is it that the nighttime sky is so black? Well, that was the question that really vexed a particular astronomer in Germany, Heinrich Obler, back around the year 1800. He was a phenomenal astronomer. He made a lot of progress in his discoveries and his theories. But here was his thinking. If the sky is full of stars, if there are more stars than anybody can ever imagine, more stars than any computer we would say today could even calculate. The whole universe is full of these stars. And if the universe is ancient, if it is infinite, and if the sky is infinite, why is it that the entire nighttime sky isn't filled with brightness from all of these stars because there are far more stars than anybody can ever know? Now, during the day, the one star close to us, the sun washes out the sky and we can't see the stars. But when we're on the other side of the world and we can't see the sun and it's dark, then the sky, if there are trillions upon trillions of stars, then the whole sky should, that light should be coming to the earth and the sky at night should be bright. Why then is it black? And he couldn't figure it out, so it's called Obler's Paradox. And for many, many years, astronomers tried to figure that riddle out. Why is the sky black at night? Well, when scientists discovered that the universe was not eternal, but that it had a distinct beginning, then they began to figure it out and we have a scientific explanation. I'm not an astronomer, and I'm not going to speak to uh, to how we go about it, but we know that 
many of those stars are so far away, the light from them hasn't yet reached the earth. But if the light from all of the stars there are in the universe ever does reach the earth, then altogether it'll make the nighttime sky bright. As it is, only a few of the stars have light that has already reached the earth in the amount of time that the universe has been in existence. And so most of the sky is black. That would be something like what a scientist would tell you. I think there's another reason too why the Lord gave us a black sky at night, punctuated by stars, and that is to show us something about our mission on this earth. What you and I are to be like, we are to be lights in the darkness and stars in the sky. And that is specifically stated by the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2. And that's the passage that I want to come to today and ask you to read with me the second chapter of Philippians chapter 2, and only verses 14, 15, and 16. But if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Paul's letter to the Philippians and chapter 2, and let's begin reading with verse 14. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault and a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. So here we're specifically told that the twinkling stars that punch holes in the blackness of the sky are illustrative of you and me, that God wants us to be twinkling lights in the darkness of the society that we are in. Now, the book of Philippians is a very interesting book. The core of the message begins with chapter 1, verse 27, and goes to chapter 2, verse 18. There's a lot of other information and wonderful passages in the book of Philippians. But if you want to know the very core of the message that was at the heart of what Paul wanted to say, it begins with chapter 1 and verse 27, and it goes through chapter 2 and verse 18. And so we're coming near to the end of this thing. And he begins saying in chapter 1 and verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or remain absent, I will know that you are standing unified in one spirit. And he goes on to say, if there is any love from God, if there is any fellowship with the Holy Spirit, if there is any grace in Christ, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Have the mind of Christ in you, who, though he was God, didn't consider all of the prerogatives of God something that he should hang on to, but he made himself into a servant and came in the likeness of men and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Wherefore, God also has highly exalted him and has given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, 
as you have always worked out, uh, as you have always obeyed, so now obey by working out what God has worked in you. Do nothing out of a spirit of complaining or a spirit of argumentative fault-finding, but instead be like this. So this is what he is saying. This is the core message he has to the Philippians. I'd like to take these two or three verses and just look at them phrase by phrase because they are so rich. He begins by saying, do nothing without grumbling or arguing. Now, this week there was a man who died. I saw it in the, um, in the press. His name was Gordon Fee, F-E-E, Dr. Gordon Fee. He was a brilliant New Testament scholar. And he passed away at the age of, I think, 86 this week. It's his commentary on Philippians that I've been using as I've gone through this book. And Dr. Fee said something fascinating about this one little paragraph that I read to you, verses number 14 through 16. He said, this paragraph of Scripture has a striking feature, which is the sudden and profuse influx of echoes from the Old Testament, which is quite unlike anything else in Paul's writings. So unique it is that one hardly knows what to make about it. In other words, what he is saying is there is something very unusual about this one paragraph. Paul lifted every phrase of it out of the Old Testament in a way that is unlike anything that we see elsewhere in his writings. Paul very often quoted from the Old Testament, but here he just took phrases from the Old Testament and strung them together in a way that is very unique. And Dr. Fee says, I don't know whether he did this intentionally or whether it was subconscious. I don't know what to make of it, but everything here comes from the Old Testament. So when Paul said, do everything without arguing or grumbling, he was quoting here from the book of Exodus and the children of Israel. So if you'll look at Exodus 16, and I'm going to actually begin in 15, but just for a moment, Exodus chapter 15, the Israelites have just come out of Egypt and through the parted waters of the Red Sea, and they have sung the first recorded hymn that we have in chapter 15. They were singing, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider fell into the sea. And Miriam and the women, they sang, and they were all full of jubilation and praise. Three days later, they are grumbling and complaining. It says in chapter 15, verse 24, so the people grumbled against Moses. And then in chapter 16, the whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. And you can go through all of Exodus and parts of Numbers. You can go through Deuteronomy. This was the besetting sin of the Israelites. They didn't have a very comfortable life but they were free from slavery. 
they had a good future ahead of them. They had the presence of God with them as a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. They had all of God's promises. They had his protection. But because everything wasn't very comfortable, they were an unhappy lot. And they grumbled and they complained and they murmured in their tents. And the Lord took great offense at it. In fact, all the way through the Bible, there are references to how the Israelites grumbled. And then I look at my life and I find very often I am doing the same thing. It is so easy for us to get into that habit. Now, what is being condemned here by Paul, what he is telling them not to do in Philippi, isn't so much an action as it is an attitude. It's not just that they were uh, evaluating something or they were saying to one another, this is pretty rough. It's that they had an attitude of unbelief. They were not taking advantage of God's presence, his promises, his protection, his provisions. They were frightened, and out of that, they developed a very negative attitude of unbelief, and they grumbled at people because of it, and they complained to Moses. And this is very easy for all of us to do. I I don't even know if we recognize it in ourselves. I don't know if I recognize how much I grumble and complain at times, but a lifestyle of grumbling and complaining isn't pleasing to the Lord. It's not that we always have a very easy time. Sometimes we don't. But we always have the Lord's presence. We always have his promises. We always have his providential ordering of all of our circumstances. We always have his provision. We have his protection. We have all of these things. And so there should be a sense in which we are cheerful and thankful and contented in life without continually complaining about things. I was a pastor for 44 years almost, and I discovered something. When someone came to me and they were unhappy about something, they were very often right. But when they came to me and they were unhappy about everything, they were very often wrong. And I was amazed by that, but I remembered the verse in the Bible that says, to the pure, everything is pure. To the happy person, things are happy. To the unhappy person, everything is unhappy. To the disgruntled person, everything is wrong. When we get into a negative mindset, We can't say anything good about our wife or our husband or our church or our community or our children or our life or whatever it is, and we find ourselves discontent and murmuring and complaining, then we're very likely to be wrong. Now, if we see one thing and we say, we need to work on that one thing, well, that's different, but that's not what the Israelites were doing. So the Apostle Paul here is describing not so much an action as he is describing an attitude. I read in a book the other day this quotation, everyone we meet is helped or hindered by what we are radiating. We are all radiating something. It makes all the difference in the world whether we go about with a smiling face or wearing a frown. A smile in the heart not only changes the expression, but it changes the whole nature which, as we know, takes on the color of our moods. 
So ask the Lord to evaluate you in the light of this verse. When Paul says, do everything without grumbling or arguing, is that the way you're living and is that the attitude that you possess? Is it the attitude that I am living and the attitude that I possess? Sometimes, frankly, it isn't. Someone really hurt me some time ago and I brooded about it and I got angry and I thought about it and then I read this passage and I thought I need to put it behind me and let go of it and I did. And that night I had a dream and in my dream I was telling this person off, you have never heard anybody scold somebody else the way that I was scolding this person in my dream. And then I woke up the next morning and as I got ready I put on my Spotify list of my favorite hymns and songs. And what should come on but the old hymn that says, may the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day. By his grace and power upholding all I do and say. And I thought to myself, I had the right scripture in the afternoon and I had the right song the next morning, but in between in my subconscious mind, the message had not yet penetrated. And so we have to work on meditating on these scriptures and thinking through and processing these things in our lives until our subconscious begins to agree with the word of God and we start living that way. So a very powerful phrase here, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that, verse 15, you may become blameless and pure. In other words, if you go around with a bad attitude, that will hinder your growth in godliness. It is very hard to grow like Christ when you have a bad attitude. Whether it's a bad attitude about school or about your coach or about whatever it is, about work, if you have a bad attitude and you're grumbling and complaining, you are not likely to be doing a whole lot of spiritual growing. He says here, do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Now, this also comes from the book of Deuteronomy, from the Old Testament. It says in Deuteronomy 18, you must be blameless before the Lord your God. The nations you will dispossess, listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you referring to the coming Christ. You must listen to him. So here again, we're told to be blameless. Now, does that mean we have to be perfect? What does blameless mean? The moment we come to Jesus Christ, we are clothed in his righteousness and we are blameless in his sight. It says in Isaiah chapter number 61, verse 10, that we are robed and the righteousness of our Lord. We are wearing the robe of his righteousness, but we have to grow into it. When I was a boy going through growth spurts, my mom would take me to get shoes or to get clothes and I'd try something on and it would fit perfect. And she said, well, we can't get that. She said, we need to get two sizes up. She always She said, so you'll have something to grow into. And so I would have these shoes. My feet would just swim in them for a while. 
and then they would feel perfect, and then before I knew it, they were too tight. And my clothes, I would, they would just be draped all over me, and then they'd fit perfect, and then they'd get too tight. She always wanted me because, you know, up in the mountains in those days, you couldn't afford a whole lot of wardrobe for your kids, and so she always bought things I could grow into. We are robed in the righteousness of Christ, but we have to grow into our clothing. We have to keep growing spiritually and more and more like Christ. And that's the process of sanctification or the process of Christification is growing into our clothes, becoming more and more at home wearing the robes of the Lord's righteousness. And this is what I think that he is saying here. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. And now, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And this is a direct quote from the book of Deuteronomy when it says, they are corrupt and not his children. To their shame, they are a warped and crooked generation. Now, there's another verse that I find very interesting that is a cross-reference to this, and it's in 1 John chapter 5. It says, we are children of God, and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And I'm just astounded by that verse. Except for you and me, those of us around the world who follow Jesus Christ, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. The devil is the God of this world. He's in control of far more than we know. What's happening right now in North Korea and the testing, the potential testing of the nuclear weapons and the insanity of some of these dictators and the oppression in China and the invasion of Ukraine and the unbalanced leadership of Russia and all of the things we see going on. This is a wicked and warped and crooked world that we are in. Except for those of us who know Jesus Christ, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And here in our own nation, one of the reasons we're so concerned about the election is because there are so many moral issues that we feel slipping away from their Judeo-Christian moorings in our society. We know that an election isn't going to solve the problem. It's going to take a revival. But we've also got to vote wisely and ask the Lord to help us because this nation is becoming more and more wicked and warped by the day. I evaluated a school textbook. You can find it. I hesitate even to tell you this, but you can find it on Amazon. But it's in a lot of schools, elementary schools. And it's called It's Perfectly Normal. And I went through that book for elementary students on sex education. And I could not believe the drawings. And here was a man and a woman, and here's a man and a man, and here's a woman and a woman, and all of these drawings, and all of the talk about gender fluidity and everything else. And the theme of the whole thing is, it doesn't matter, it's all perfectly normal. And I was so depressed after I thumbed through that book to think that any school child would be subjected to that. We've got to know what our children are reading in the schools. 
We've got to be aware of the evil that there is in this world right now. And in so many ways, this is like the days of Noah when the intents of the thoughts of the heart were only evil all the time. And you think about what's on the screens that everybody is looking at with their pads and their phones and and the onslaught of pornography and the secular philosophies that are taking over. Well, we shouldn't be surprised by it because the Bible tells us that in the last days, perilous times will come. And it tells us that the entire world is under the control of the evil one. And we're told here that we are living in a wicked and warped generation. And so we're exactly where we're supposed to be. This is the world that God intends for us to populate. This is the nation where he wants us to be ambassadors for him. That's why we are alive now. And in this particular day and age, here on the precipice of prophecy, we are here to be children of God in a warped and wicked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. And this again is a quotation from the Old Testament. The book of Deuteronomy says that the Israelites will multiply like the stars in the sky. But also in Daniel chapter 12, it says those who were wise into eternal life will shine like stars in the universe. So one of the reasons the sky is so black is so that we can see the stars. One of the reasons our society is so dark is so that people can see the Christians. We are here in the darkness of this world, shining like stars, letting our light be seen, and holding out the word of life. And that happens in so many different ways. I spoke a couple of weekends ago for the leadership of the International Gideons that place Bibles all over the world. You know about the ministry of the Gideons. And they had a man who came and he gave his testimony. This man talked about how he'd grown up in a very abusive home. And he told us some of the things that his stepfather used to do to him. And it was beyond evil. And he said, as soon as I could, I left home and I joined the Navy. And he said, nothing in the Navy was nearly as bad as what I'd experienced as a child. And he said, I was on board a ship. And he said, I was a gambler. And I won thousands of dollars gambling. But he said, we didn't play cards. We gambled over the game Trivia Pursuit. And he said, my other sailors didn't know that I had a photographic memory. And I went through all of the cards and memorized all of the answers. And he said, I would win 18,000 one night, 20,000 the next night. He said, I was getting rich. And then one of the sailors said, let's not play Trivia Pursuit anymore. Let's play Bible Trivia Pursuit. Well, he said, I didn't know anything about the Bible. And I went all over the ship looking for a Bible. And I found one finally that said Bible. And on the cover, it said Gideon's. And I said, well, someone named Gideon has left his Bible here, and I'm going to borrow it. And he began reading the Bible, and he said, I started with Genesis, and I read Exodus, and I got to Leviticus finally, and he said, I just, I couldn't quite understand it all. 
But he said, I was on shore leave and I went in the store and there was a book there by Tim LaHaye said, how to read the Bible or how to study the Bible. And he said, I bought it and I read that book. And Tim LaHaye said, when you read the Bible for the first time, don't start at Genesis, but go to 1 John and read through that little letter 10 times. So he said, I went to 1 John and I read through it and I read through it again. He said, by the seventh time, I was weeping on my knees and giving my life to Jesus. And it was a remarkable testimony, all because somebody placed one Bible on one ship in the Navy. I don't know who did it, but they were holding out the word of life. And when you give someone a Bible, or you give them a book, or you write them a letter, or you invite them to church, or you say, let's go to the ice rink and then go to the service with us, or whatever it is you do, you never know how the Lord is going to use that. We are, I mean, it is simple things like that. We don't have to be great evangelists. I wish that I had the ability to be a great evangelist and bring thousands of people to the Lord, but God didn't give me that ability. But most people don't come to the Lord in that way anyway. They come to the Lord because a friend says, let me tell you what Jesus did for me. Or you're having a hard time, but let me give you a Bible verse. Or I know it's a busy time of year, but we have this Christmas event at our church where you go. Or has anyone ever told you what it means to be a Christian? Or here is a book that I want to give you. It's meant a lot to me. Just in the simple ways we can go about our lives every day, we hold out the Word of God like stars in the blackness of this universe. And God will bless it. And this is the last phrase. It says, let's go back and read it from the beginning. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life or as you hold out the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. And this also comes from the Old Testament, from the book of Isaiah, where the writer in Isaiah said, what I am doing is not going to be in vain. And the Apostle Paul really loved that phrase. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, he said, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because you know that your labor and the Lord is not in vain. We never know how God is going to use something that we do. Many, many, many years ago, probably, well, not that many, a dozen years ago or so, my sister Ann called me and she said, in our hometown of Elizabethton, Tennessee, they're having covered bridge days because we have a beautiful old covered bridge across the Doe River, right in the middle of town. And she said, vendors are going to come and set up their booths and crafts workers, and there's going to be thousands of people there. It's in May. Why don't you come and have a display of your books? And my sister is very uh, artistic and creative. And so she had made, do you know what a corn shuck doll is? 
she had made corn shuck dolls, and she said, I'll sell those and you sell your books and we'll have a good time. So I said, all right, and I loaded the vehicle full of books and must have taken a thousand. And we got up there and there was an unusual heat wave. And we were out on the sidewalk in that blazing heat, hours every day, nobody showed up. And my sister has always been upset with me because I sold three books, but she didn't sell a single corn shuck doll. And we said, we'll never do this again. And we haven't. But a couple of years ago, I was in Elizabethton and I walked down the street and there was a quilting shop and my mother made quilts and I was trying to get ideas as to how to display them. And I walked in and the lady who I'd never seen before to my knowledge said, you're Robert Morgan. And I said, well, I am. She said, about 10 years ago, I bought a book from you at Covered Bridge Days and it changed my life. I said, well, you're one of three. (laughs) I wonder who the other two people are. But you see, and she went on to say, we have bought your books and used them for small groups and our Bible studies and everything. She went on and on and made me feel thankful. But it just goes to show I had written the whole thing off as a failure. But the Lord has no failure in the future of his children who serve him. We just don't always see the results. But Paul said, my labor is not going to be in vain. And neither is yours, nor the work of this great church. What we are doing for him, even in these perilous days, he has placed us here. At this time, I mean, we're here in this year of our Lord, in this desperate political situation, in a world that is going crazy, we are here because God ordained for you and me to be here in the darkness to shine like stars in the universe, and that's a pretty good place to be. So ladies and gentlemen, do everything without grumbling or complaining so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault and a warped and crooked generation, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold out the word of life, and then we will know that we have not worked or labored for the Lord in vain. Well, will you stand please for our benediction? Dear Lord, may we be as your stars, every one of us, growing into the clothing of the righteousness of Christ and holding out the word of life. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us tonight and tomorrow, this week and both now and forever. Well, thanks for digging into the riches of the Bible with me. And I hope that you'll share this podcast with a friend. This episode was produced by Joshua Rowe and the marketing company, Clearly Media. Audio editing is done by Jared Brummett. Print editing and blog posting by Sherry Anderson. 
and Luke Tyler, and music by Jordan Davis and Elijah Rowe. Thank you for listening, everyone, and may God be with you until we meet again.